You are listening to the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. In 2008, the EFCA adopted an updated strengthened statement of faith. Following that update, the EFCA Spiritual Heritage Committee wrote the book Evangelical Convictions, an exposition of the statement of faith of the EFCA to help pastors and church leaders better understand what we believe. On this episode of the podcast, Alejandro Mendez reads Chapter 3 of Evangelical Convictions. Alejandro serves as EFCA Executive Director of All People Initiative. Article 3, The Human Condition. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan in union with Adam. Human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Who are we as human beings? Though our knowledge of the world around us has exploded since the dawn of the scientific age, we remain a mystery to ourselves. The human person continues to perplex and confound. Who is this I by which we refer to ourselves? We are more than our bodies, but we seem mysteriously bound to them. We are a part of the natural world as animals among animals, yet instinctively we feel that we are more than that. We are spiritual creatures, conceiving of eternity and longing for immortality. But the puzzle of humanity also has a moral dimension. We are capable of acts of great compassion, even heroic virtue. Some even sacrifice their lives to rescue others in peril. Yet some deep strain of corruption still plagues human life. Intellectual and technological sophistication seem to have had no effect on our proclivity for evil, to which the horrors of the 20th century attest. All our lofty ideals and utopian dreams eventually flounder on the rocks of reality. The evidences of the darkness of the human heart are pervasive human history. Yet such darkness still surprises us. Somehow we cannot think of it as merely natural and unavoidable. Some things seem to have gone dreadfully wrong. Daniel Miglior sums it up well. We human beings are a mystery to ourselves. We are rational and irrational, civilized and savage, capable of deep friendship and murderous hostility, free and in bondage, the pinnacle of creation and its greatest danger. We are Rembrandt and Hitler, Mozart and Stalin, Antigone and Lady Macbeth. Ruth and Jezebel. Where can we go for help as we wrestle with this riddle? The story is told of Arthur Schopenhauer, the 19th century German philosopher, who was sitting in a park, deceived, unkept, as if homeless. A park policeman approached Schopenhauer and asked him who he was. Would to God I knew the answer to that question, he replied. In fact, it is to God we must go if we are to find the answer to this most baffling riddle. For God, our Creator, has spoken to us through His Word and has revealed the best and most satisfying answer to be found anywhere. And as importantly, He has also revealed the one way that human depravity can be destroyed and human dignity can be established through divine redemption.
Roman numeral one, the source of human dignity, our creation in God's image. The biblical story of creation finds its climax in these words from Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 1, 26-27, and verse 31. Here is the source of all human dignity and significance, and the place where the sanctity of human life is rooted. Of all the creatures on the earth, only human beings are created in the image of God. Man is a creature of great mystery, but it is a derived dignity, a God-given greatness. According to the Bible, human beings must be defined in terms of their relation to God as the image of God. The more detailed story of the creation of the first man in Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear that human beings are a part of the created order. Adam, the first human, was made from the dust of the earth, just like all animals, Genesis 2.19. Yet in this one respect, he was unique. Though created from the dust of the earth, he was made in the image of God. He was a part of the natural world, yet in some sense above it, transcending it. Part of the riddle of our existence is found in this precarious position, a human beings as God's image. What does it mean to be created in God's image? Yamaju Dei? The Bible does not define that state, so we must draw inferences from elsewhere in the scriptures. The combination with the word likeness suggests that in some sense human beings are created to mirror God, to reflect something of who he is in the world. If the heavens declare the glory of God, how much more the human person? But what is the nature of this divine reflection? He is the source of all human dignity and significance, and the place where the sanctity of human life is rooted. Of all the creatures on the earth, only human beings are created in the image of God. Man is a creature of great mystery, but it is a derived dignity, a God-given greatness. According to the Bible, human beings must be defined in terms of their relation to God as the image of God. The more detailed story of the creation of the first man in Genesis chapter 2 makes it clear that human beings are a part of the created order. Adam, the first human, was made from the dust of the earth, just like all animals, Genesis 2.19. Yet, in this one aspect, he was unique. Though created from the dust of the earth, he was made in the image of God. He was a part of the natural order, yet in some sense above it, transcending it. Part of the riddle of our existence is found in this precarious position. We are suspended between two worlds. But nothing suggests that this amphibian-like nature was a cause of distress much less of depravity. Our material mode of being was, in God's sight, very good. Genesis 1.31 A. 
human beings as God's image. What does it mean to be created in God's image, the Imago Dei? The Bible does not define that state, so we must draw inference from somewhere else in Scripture. The combination with the word likeness suggests that in some sense human beings are created to mirror God, to reflect something of who he is in the world. If the heavens declare the glory of God, how much more the human person? But what is the nature of this divine reflection? In what ways either do or should human beings mirror God? Human beings are rational beings, able to think, to tell the truth. We are moral beings, able to make judgments about good and evil. We are social beings, able to communicate and to love. We are artistic beings, able to create and to appreciate beauty. And we are spiritual beings, able to worship and to pray. All these qualities point to the uniqueness of human beings in creation as persons who think, feel, speak, make free decisions and moral judgments, and who long to know and be known, to love and be loved. In all these ways, we somehow transcend our material existence and assume moral responsibility and spiritual apprehension and reflect the personal nature of God. As persons, we are engaged in relationships, and our creation in God's image suggests relationship in two directions. First, and most obviously, our creation in God's image entails a relationship with God himself. To be a human being is to be directed toward God. We are created by God. We are dependent on God. We are responsible to God. All other relationships are to be dominated and regulated by this one overarching reality. We are made for a relationship with God. In the Genesis text, human beings are the only creatures with whom God engages in personal interaction. And the first word of God to them was a blessing. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This was a statement of their privileged position in God's created order. The next word was a command. The Lord God commanded the man, You are to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. 2, 16-17 We are the only earthly creatures that stand under the moral command of God. God speaks to us in words of blessing and command. Like a father, God loves us and has authority over us at the same time. We are created by God to receive his love. And we are created by God to submit to his authority. And our response will result in either life or death. This vertical dimension must be the starting point for our understanding of ourselves. We are created to live in a relationship with God, our Creator. The second dimension of the relationship, the horizontal, along with the human plane, will be addressed below. Another dimension of this concept emerges when we see that the biblical expression of man's unique creation condition could also be translated as God's image. 
See also 1 Corinthians 11.7. This suggests that human beings not only reflect God in the world, they also represent him. Ancient rulers often erected images of themselves in distant parts of their realm. The image stood for the ruler himself. It represented his authority. Whoever possesses that image of the king exercised his royal authority. So man too represents God, almost like an ambassador in a foreign country. This aspect of the image of God comes out of the command for man to rule over creation, Genesis 1.26, and is illustrated in the task given to Adam for naming the animals in Genesis 2. Human beings are to subdue God's creation in the sense of having dominion over it. And God put Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. 2.15 Nature is not man's slave to be exploited, but man is a steward of the natural world to govern it as God's vice-regent, ruling it under God's authority. Nature can be taken in its broadest context to include all of God's creation, encompassing the human endeavor of science, technology, entertainment, athletics, art, and music. We may broaden the command to develop culture in many ways in which we use our gifts in all these areas for the good of others and the glory of God. See also 1 Corinthians 10.31 Because human beings are the image of God, they ought also to be honored appropriately. One honors God by honoring his image. For this reason, Jesus links the command to love God with the command to love one's neighbor, who is created in the image of God. Love for one's neighbor demonstrates love for God. In his letter, James speaks of the evil inconsistency of the tongue. With it, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. The fact that murder is considered to be a capital crime is also grounded in this connection. In Genesis 9-6, we read, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. We encounter God as we encounter other human beings. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For everyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20 We cannot hate the image and say we love the one it represents. The Bible affirms that every human being is created in the image of God, not just the king, as was believed in many ancient cultures. According to Proverbs 14.31, even the lowly peasant represents God. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. This is the basis of what we call natural law and universal human rights. All human life, at whatever stage of development, from conception to death, at whatever socioeconomic status, and at whatever level of physical or intellectual capacity, is sacred because all human beings are created in the image of God. Even when this image has been corrupted by our sin, every human being is still worthy of honor and respect. There is nothing more valuable in all of creation than a human life. B. 
The Significance of Adam and Eve The Apostle Paul declares in his address to the Athenians that from one man, God, made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, Acts 17.26. The Genesis story identifies that one man as Adam. As an expression of the incompleteness of creation, God declared that it was not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18 The first man was joined by the first woman, Eve, and the design of God to create man in his own image as male and female was complete. Genesis 1.27 This gendered creation is significant in several ways. First, it points to the essentially relational nature of human existence. As God exists eternally in a Trinitarian union of love, of three divine persons, so human beings created in his image are to share in personal relationships. Adam's solitary life called for a partner, a helper, suitable for him. Genesis 1.18 To be fully human, we have to need for social interaction with other human beings. Second, the Genesis account assumes the equal value of men and women. Each is created in God's image. We find no biblical grounds for an oppressive patriarchy. Third, while affirming the equal significance of man and woman as creatures uniquely created in the image of God, the Bible also affirms their differences. Paul draws on the fact that Adam was created first to ground some instruction regarding behavior in the assembly of the church. See 1 Corinthians 11, 3-10, and 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. Fourth, our gendered creation reflects the divine command to be fruitful and increase in number. Genesis 1, 28. Part of God's original blessing of the first human beings. Procreation, in the context of the marriage relationship, is a part of the goodness of God's design for human life. Finally, the creation of human beings as male and female also reinforces the notion of a created order, particularly as it points us to the marriage relationship. The culmination of the story of Genesis 2 is the explanatory declaration in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Jesus himself points to this passage as the design of the Creator for marriage from the beginning. Matthew 19, 3-9 The Apostle Paul also reforced to homosexual acts as contrary to this natural order. Romans 1, 27-28 God has created us male and female, and this difference is a significant and ought to be recognized and valued. There are legitimate differences of opinion about how one understands the nature of the language used in the early chapters of Genesis to describe the actions of God in the world. However, our statement affirms that Adam and Eve were historical figures in the following sense. 1. From these two, all other human beings are descended. Acts 17.26 2. These two were the first created creatures in God's image, such that they were accountable to God as responsible moral agents. And three, 
these two rebelled against God, affecting all of their progeny. What is essential to the biblical storyline is that the problem with the world is not ontological, that is, it is not a result of the material nature of creation itself, nor is sin an essential part of our humanity. The problem is moral. The first human beings, from the very beginning, in a distinct act of rebellion, chose to turn away from God, and this act not only affected all humanity, see Romans 5, 12 through 21, but creation itself, see Romans 8, 18 through 25. Roman numeral 2, the source of human depravity, our fall into sin. Mark Twain once said that man is the only creature in all creation that can blush, and he is the only creature that needs to. We are the only creatures who realize that we are not what we should be, and that discrepancy is the cause of great distress. As Blase Pascal observed, the greatness of man is great in that he knows himself to be miserable. We are confronted by the moral riddle of human existence. Why do we expect more good out of human beings than is ever realized? Pascal asks, who isn't happy at not being a king except a deposed king? He concludes, all these miseries prove man's greatness. They are the miseries of a great lord, of a deposed king. That points us to the answer that we find in the Bible. There, human beings are depicted as dethroned monarchs with a moral memory of their former greatness, a memory which makes them long to regain that which is now lost. Our statement of faith follows the biblical story moving from the glory of Genesis 2 to the guilt of Genesis 3. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame as they enjoyed the blessing of God in the garden he had created for them. But quite suddenly, a new creature emerges into the idyllic world, a tempter. Though his existence is real, his origin is unknown. He is depicted simply as a serpent, a snake, a mere creature. A. Tempted by Satan. But what is the source of this first evil in the cosmos? We are left with a mystery, which reflects the mystery of evil itself. Certainly, this snake, who in this story is the embodiment of Satan himself, see Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 22, could not have been created evil. For all that God made was good, Genesis 1.31. Scripture provides hints that may point to the primordial rebellion among the angelic beings that resulted in this evil. But even that does not tell us why evil entered into God's creation in the first place. It just pushes the entrance and the mystery still further back. However, they originated. The Bible affirms the reality of evil spiritual beings led by Satan, the tempter, and the accuser, and the liar and murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. He remains our greatest enemy, though he was defeated by Christ on the cross and will be banished forever when Christ returns in glory, and every enemy is put under his feet, and he finally turns the kingdom over to God. 1 Corinthians 
24. The tempter simply appears in the garden, and his role in the story emphasizes there was nothing in man himself to prompt him to rebellion against God's rule. There was no natural cause of evil within the human race. There was simply freedom, a freedom reflecting God's own freedom. And it was toward this freedom that the tempter directed his efforts. In his craftiness, the serpent first cast doubt on the word of God, introducing the first questioning of God's character into the world. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1 Through misrepresentation, the serpent creates confusion. He turns the word of God on its head, making it say the opposite of what was intended. God's liberal permission and single prohibition, Genesis 2.16-17, now seem to be restrictive and constraining. Then the serpent attacks God's truthfulness. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, suggesting that sin was not to be judged. Once the prospect of judgment is cast away, it is relatively easy to open the floodgates of unbelief. Finally, in verse 5, he cast doubt on God's goodness in making this prohibition. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The temptation had its intended effect. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Verse 6. We must be clear. The temptation of the serpent was not the cause of Eve's choice, simply the occasion for it. B. The nature of sin. Even with great freedom and dominion over the earth, Adam and Eve were nevertheless God's creatures. The forbidden fruit of this tree of knowledge of good and evil was a reminder that they were not God, but were responsible to Him. The knowledge of good and evil refers to deciding or determining what is good and evil, a prerogative that rightfully belongs to God alone. To disobey God and to eat of that tree was a rejection of God's rule and authority. It was nothing less than an act of cosmic treason against the king of the universe. The New Testament uses a variety of words to express human sin in various facets. The most common, hamartia, suggests that sin is the missing of a target or a failure to reach a goal. Two others, adikia, unrighteousness, and pornia, wickedness, evil, depict sin as inner corruption of character. Two more active words, parabasis and paratotoma, speak of sin as a deliberate trespass, a stepping over a known boundary, while still another, anomia, is more explicit the violation of a known law. But the notion of sin ultimately has a Godward focus. We sin against God. We reject His rightful rule. Thus the essence of sin is rebellion. Whether it involves murder or envy, a malicious act or a selfish intention. In the Bible, sin is simply putting oneself at the center of the universe, usurping the place of God. 
As John Stott puts it, sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification, the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Sin is the attempt to create a self-centered universe. Roman numeral three, the continuing effect of sin, our union with Adam. Through human rebellion and disobedience, sin entered into the world, and the effects were immediate. For the first time, Adam and Eve experienced shame, and they clothed themselves. In fear, they hid from God. The intimate transparency of a loving relationship was shattered. When confronted with their sin, they each sought to evade responsibility. But they were responsible, and the Lord cursed them, expressing his judgment upon them for their act, which brought about the disruption of all the good relationship that had existed in his good creation, the relationship between God and humanity, the relationship between man and woman, the relationship between humanity and creation. They were banished from the garden, and the flaming sword which guarded the way back to the tree of life signified their alienation from God and his holy wrath against them. Genesis 3.24 Life in Eden was no more. God's good creation was perverted by sin. More important still were the continuing effects of sin. The biblical narrative emphasizes this. In humanity's second generation, Cain murdered his brother Abel, Genesis 4, and the moral slide continued. Despite the development of civilization, Genesis 4, 17-22, by the middle of Genesis 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Genesis 6, 5-6 The account of Adam's line, Genesis 5, is punctuated by the recurring words, and then he died. Tolling like a funeral bell, death had entered the world, and this genealogy charts its methodical progress. This is the legacy of the sin of Adam, a legacy which theologians call the fall. The sin of Adam corrupted God's good creation and unleashed the power of sin and death in the world. And this has affected us all. Creation itself has been subjected to frustration and is now in bondage to decay. Romans 8, 20-21 They acquired the last name Sinner the minute they were born, even before they inevitably and not unwillingly displayed the family likeness. We all now share Adam's image. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. In God's design, in a mysterious way, we were all linked to Adam. The Apostle Paul most clearly formulates this connection in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 5 he says, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way death came to all men, because all sin. By the trespasses of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Verse 17. Through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. 
verse 19. That one man is Adam, verse 14. Somehow, that sin of Adam has affected us all. The corruption of his nature that resulted from his sin is imparted to all his posterity. Our union with Adam is the ultimate source of the universality of sin and death. A. Sinful by nature and by choice. This corruption of human nature is called original sin. It is original in that it is with us before we are born, and it is the soil out of which all our conscious sin arises. As David lamented, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51.5, see also Psalm 58.3. We do not enter the world with a moral blank slate. Our fallen human nature is with us from before our first breath. Sin's corruption is impressed upon us inescapably, and it will inevitably reveal itself through our own willful acts of sin. We are sinners by the nature we inherited and by the choices we make. Put simply, we sin because we are sinners. Philip Hughes expressed it this way, Original sin, however mysterious its nature may be, tells us that the reality of sin is something far deeper than the mere outward commission of sinful deeds. It tells us that there is an inner root of sinfulness which corrupts man's true nature and from which his sinful deeds spring. Like a deadly poison, sin has penetrated into and affected the very center of man's being. 1. The breadth of sin. The Bible affirms that the human culpability in sin is universal, with the one exception of Jesus Christ. The passages which speak of this all-inclusive reality are many. If you, O Lord, kept the record of, of sin, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 133. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143.2. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean without sin? Proverbs 29. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1.8. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3.10-12. These statements must be allowed to qualify all the references in the Bible to righteousness or blameless persons, such as Abraham, Moses, David, or Noah. Their righteousness is only relative in comparison to other people, or limited in reference to certain aspects of the law. For all have sinned before God. Furthermore, throughout the New Testament, it is assumed that everyone needs to repent. But the universality of sin is not just found as a doctrine in the Bible, though that would be enough. The religious experience of mankind attests to it. Religion in all ages and all creatures has wrestled with the question of Job. 
How shall a man be just before God? Religion reveals the universal consciousness of sin and the need for reconciliation with the Supreme Being. The gods are offended and must be propitiated in some way. Altars reek with the blood of sacrifices, including the sacrifices of children, as mankind seeks to atone for sin or curry divine favor. There is also the universal voice of consciousness speaking to our own hearts. Something inside us testifies against us, and we feel we must do something to make things right. We are all guilty. Sin is universal. 2. The Depth of Sin The effect of sin upon us is not only broad, it is also deep. It affects our whole person. Nothing escapes sin's defilement. Through the Old Testament, generally addresses sin as specific acts rather than as a disposition. Ezekiel and Jeremiah in particular depict sin as a spiritual sickness which afflicts the heart at the deepest level. Our heart is diseased and must be cured. Jeremiah speaks of it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9. In fact, Ezekiel says, Our hearts of stone must be replaced with a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11.19. See also Jeremiah 31.33. In the New Testament, Jesus says our evil deeds flow from an evil heart as surely as rotten fruit grows on a diseased tree. Matthew 12.33-35. Consider Paul's description of the sinfulness of Jews and Gentiles alike with a chain of Old Testament texts using various parts of the body to emphasize the all-pervasive nature of sin's corruption. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3, 13 through 15 and 18, illustrating the truth of 3, 10 through 12. Every part of us, every human faculty is infected with and affected by this dreadful malady, our mind, our will, our emotions, and our experience. None of them can be trusted as objective guides of truth because all of them are in collusion against God. Caught up in this tangled web of sin, everything about us that was created to love God and to worship Him and bring Him glory has now turned against Him in sinful rebellion. Sin has affected even our social and political structures, creating injustices and oppression. This deep pervasiveness of sin the results from the corruption of human nature, is what theologians call total depravity. This doctrine does not mean that every person is as wicked as he or she can possibly be and engages in every possible form of sin. Nor does it mean that the unbeliever is totally insensitive in matters of conscience or never does anything that is good or right before other people or that sinful human beings cannot be fine citizens with high moral standards. God's common grace is still at work, restraining human sin. 
Total depravity simply means that everything we are and everything we do is somehow affected by our sin. As J.I. Packard writes, No one is as bad as he or she might be, though, on the other hand, no action of ours is as good as it should be. None of our motives is entirely pure, and none of our intentions is entirely praiseworthy. Sin pervades our entire personality. Consequently, total depravity implies the total inability on the part of the sinner to rescue himself from his sinful condition. Sin is too much a part of who we are. Paul says that in our natural state, we are dead in our transgressions and sin. Ephesians 2.1 No one can do anything that merits the moral favor of God. Romans 3.20 See also John 15.4-5 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh, that is, under the enslavement of sin, cannot please God. Romans 8, 7-8 All our righteous acts are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. Isaiah 64, 6 Evangelical theology, in all its various forms, has affirmed both our total depravity in sin and our total inability to save ourselves. Without the gracious work of the Holy Spirit enabling a sinful human being to understand and believe the gospel, we are without hope. This doctrine of original sin, this congenital condition of sinful corruption, is a great mystery and remains an offense to the sensibilities of many. But this singular ministry, once accepted, sheds great light on human experience. This Christian doctrine of sin has been described as the only doctrine empirically proven by 5,000 years of recorded human history. How else do we account for this mystifying thing called human nature? Why is it that every person ever born except one has exhibited this apparently innate human propensity to disobey God? Blase Pascal put it this way, Certainly, nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine of original sin. And yet, but for this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. The Jewish philosopher Martin Buber once lamented, Is there any force in the world that can change that intractable thing, human nature? There is a tragedy at the heart of things, yes, there is a tragedy, and we must face it squarely. As J.C. Ryle has observed, if a man doesn't realize the dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. B. Alienated from God Our statement on humanity not only describes who we are in ourselves, but also who we are in relationship with God. From the time of Adam's exclusion from the garden, human beings have existed in a state of alienation from their Creator, cut off from the real source of life and blessedness. Human beings experience a state of spiritual death, Ephesians 2, 1, 5, and then chapter 4, 18. 
Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Paul writes, Colossians 1.21, see also Romans 5.10, Our sin separates us from a holy God. See, under God's wrath. God's holiness also issues in a righteous rejection of evil, which the Bible calls his wrath. God's wrath flows from his person as much as from his nature. Since God alone is worthy of worship, he is personally jealous for his own honor. To refuse to acknowledge him as God and to give to another the honor rightly due him is idolatry, which is a personal affront to his majesty and glory. The wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul writes, as he begins his exposition of the universal sinfulness of humanity, Romans 1.18, see also Romans 1.18 through 3.20, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, Romans 1. 21 and 23. This is the essence of human sin, and as sinners, Paul declares, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Ephesians 2.3. Awaiting a day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.5. See also Revelation 6.17. Apart from Christ, we stand under God's wrath. Romans 5.9. 1 Five, nine, facing the prospect of eternal condemnation. To combat this deadly disease of human depravity and the judgment of God, which is rightly deserves, we need more than positive thinking. New rules or religious rituals will not suffice. Moral maxims are worthless. Nor will a self-help manual do us any good. In this tragic condition, we need a divine Savior, someone who can save us from God's wrath and renew us in God's image. Nothing less will do. Roman numeral number four. Our only hope, God's saving work in Jesus Christ, rescued, reconciled, and renewed. For the Christian, the human condition cannot be considered apart from Jesus Christ. Though we will look more extensively at his person and work in the next two chapters, we must focus our attention here on Jesus as the perfect embodiment of the image of God in humanity. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul boldly declares of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 See also 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Jesus, in his human nature, is what Adam and Eve were created to be. He revealed God in his incarnation. He lived in relationships of love with his heavenly father and with his earthly neighbor. And he exercised his rule over the natural world so that even the wind and the sea obeyed him. John tells us, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the father's side, has made him known. John 1.18 In Hebrews we read, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. 
Hebrews 1.3. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said in John 14.9. As the image of God, Jesus reveals God to us. And as the image of God, he shows us what all human beings were meant to be. Jesus is the full expression of the perfection of God intended when he created man in his image. In answer to the question, what is man? The Bible directs us to Jesus. Further, as the image of God, Jesus came to undo the sin of Adam. Paul points us to this glorious truth. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. Romans 5.19 Adam, being made in God's image, longed for equality with God and saw it as something to be snatched. Jesus Christ was equal with God, but he did not see it as something to use for his own advantage. See Philippians 2, 5-11. While Adam desired to be great and refused to be God's servant, grasping instead for the likeness of God, Jesus Christ made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Whereas Adam exalted himself and became disobedient unto death, Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And whereas Adam was condemned and disgraced to the dishonor of God the Father, Jesus Christ was highly exalted and was given the name of Lord to the glory of God the Father. Consequently, just as the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Romans 5.18 Jesus Christ, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45, came as God to be what man was meant to be. He came to undo the sin of Adam by his own obedience and to create a new humanity, a people redeemed by his death, who would follow him in their lives. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine. This is our hope. And this is our only hope. We are either enslaved in the sinfulness of Adam by our natural birth, or we are liberated in the righteousness of Christ by our new birth. Jesus Christ alone can rescue us from the wrath of God that rightly stands over all who are in unison with Adam. Jesus Christ alone can reconcile us from the alienation which came when God justly cast Adam from the garden. And Jesus Christ alone can renew that divine image which has been corrupted by Adam's sin. The good news of the gospel is that this is precisely what he has done. Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thess 1.10, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 We have been delivered from the condemnation our sin deserves and the moral captivity our sin creates. For example, Romans 6.18 
Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5.8 For God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19 We now enjoy peace with God as our Father. Romans 5.1 and 18.16 And in Christ, that corrupted damage is being renewed into a new humanity created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10, 2 Corinthians 4.16, see also Romans 8.29. Our great hope is that when he appears, we shall be like him. 1 John 3.2 The seriousness of our sinful condition demanded nothing less than God's saving work in Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. 1 Timothy 2.5-6 He and his saving work will be the subject of our next two chapters. Conclusion Carl Sagan, the Cornell astronomer, once captured the modern problem of understanding what it means to be human. We humans are like a newborn baby left on a doorstep, he said, with no more explanation who it is. Thankfully, the Bible gives us that note. More than that, in Jesus Christ, our God, has come personally into this world to adopt us as his own. Our being created by God in his image and then our fallen into sin together provide the key to the riddle of human condition. They explain our origin, illuminate our present tragedy, and point us to our glorious destiny when we as Christians, rescued from God's wrath and reconciled from our alienation with him, shall be fully renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.